Next Generation Innovators is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Alicia Stevenson, Chief Commercial Officer at Future Women and your host again for Next Generation Innovators, a podcast in partnership with Oz Industries Entrepreneurs Program. Have you ever seen a straight banana in your supermarket? Or an apple whose colour is a little, do we say, off? Chances are you haven't. You see, supermarkets have pretty rigid standards, and that means that fruit, veggies and meat that don't fit the mould get thrown out. And that's a lot of food. But there are people trying to change that, and one of them is our guest today, Katie Barfield. In 2016, she founded Yumi Food Australia, and as CEO, she works with suppliers and farmers to find and then sell excess stock and put it on plates instead of putting it in the bin. Katie, welcome to Next Generation Innovators. Thank you. Good to be here. Katie, I would love to start with you talking us through how Yumi Foods works if people aren't familiar with it. Absolutely. Yumi Food is a platform for the sale of surplus food. So we have a number of large suppliers, um, primary producers, manufacturers, mainly the source, people that actually create or make the food. And they put it up on the platform when they have surplus of it for a myriad of reasons. It can be because it's got short date on it. It could be a cancelled order. It could be a mistake on the packaging. It could be the fact that they're redesigning their packaging, all variety of different reasons. They put it up. It's a B2B platform and then other businesses can buy it. So we supply everything from lounges to other manufacturers to discount retailers, um, hospitality venues, etc. So what would be the bigger challenge then, getting food distributors to list surplus or to find the buyers for it? Two-sided marketplaces are such a chicken and egg. There's always an imbalance until you get to that critical mass. So early days, it was actually finding suppliers that would trust us enough to give us a go because the stockpile answer was, we don't have any waste. We don't have any waste, nothing to see here. And yet we knew that there's 4.1 million tonnes of food going to waste in the commercial and industrial food space alone. That's over 500 semi-trailers a day which is a lot of food, you know. Imagine that sort of running off the road. It would just be food everywhere. So we know it's there, but they wouldn't admit it early days because it's a point of shame, really, and people don't want to say, well, we've actually made a mistake here. It's a bit of a hot potato in companies. So early days it was that. But then when we actually got people to kind of open the kimono and share with us what they did have that was going to go to waste, it was then finding the right buyers for them because the last we want is after we've persuaded them to give us an opportunity to sell their product, then it doesn't doesn't sell because that's not a great first experience. So it's a constant balancing act. Not only to be able to do that, to get them to open the kimono, as you say, which is a, <laughs> is a great expression, there comes then the question of the logistics. So how does it get from them to where is it going to who does it get sold to? And you also, or Yumi Foods and yourself, also really help with the logistics. Can you tell us something about how that works? Well, one of the things early on we decided was we didn't want to put any more assets on the road if we could help it. So we didn't want to build any more infrastructure, put any more trucks on the road because there are enough. We can utilise that late capacity in the logistics cold chain and also warehousing. So Peak hour says, yes, there are plenty of trucks on the road, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but yes, it's they have their own infrastructure. So we kind of tap into that. So with suppliers, they get to set the minimum order quantity. They get to set the delivery terms and then they deliver it directly to the buyer. Really what we're doing is showcasing what is available. And up until now, that's been really opaque. You haven't been able to see what's available. And we've sort of brought transparency to this opaque system. 
That's fantastic. And really, that's a, a 360 look at really making sure that this is working as a model, but also taking away my joke about peak hour, fantastic for the environment. So yes, yes and indeed. really cutting out a lot of the middle kind of areas. Yeah, and we plug in. So if there is a 3PL, a supplier can't deliver it, then we have a 3PL company and they will make that connection for the buyer and supplier. So if we can just roll back very quickly to Second Bite, because I think it's really important that people get the full picture of how you kind of came to Yumi Foods, because it's not the first iteration of this idea for you. In case people don't know, you were the founding chief executive of Second Bite, which is a platform bringing food that would have gone to waste to people in need of meals. Now, this is not B2B. This is food to people. And that was before Yumi Foods. So that begs the question then, dating back even earlier than that, What was the catalytic moment for you to say, this is actually an area of need and this is something that I'm going to have to dedicate my life to, if it's fair to say that? It was one of those sort of serendipitous moments if we go back to how I ended up at Second Bite in the first place. I used to own a little bar in the city called The Bug Bar and it was, I remember my partner and I went in there and it was this dive of a bar that was serving like one cup of cold chips and a warm beer to a backpacker. And we thought this is a real goldmine because there's an opportunity here for us to put something that's a bit of a jazz bar and put some really funky food on in that mid-price range bracket. So we did that and it became really successful. We had jazz singing down there. But one of the things that struck me is the amount of food that went to waste in this tiny little bar. Because it wasn't a big bar. It would have sat 45, 50 at capacity. And at the end of trading, he would throw this food away. And I thought, my gosh, there's 40,000 at the time. There's a lot more now. 40,000 cafes and restaurants. And they're all doing this. This is cumulatively a lot of food that's going to waste every day. So that was the catalytic moment where I went, okay, there's – there is something here and there's a lot of food going to waste. Up until then, I really didn't know that. I didn't come from a family that was particularly environmentally conscious. They ate meat, they got on with their lives. There was none of that in my childhood growing up, except that I embraced the beauty of the countryside, which is where I was born Mm -hmm. in England. So that was it. And then I met with Ian Carson, who had a group of volunteers. There was no one working for Second Bite at the time. He'd come up with a name. They were going down to the Paran markets and picking up some food at the end of trading and taking it down to Sacred Heart Mission and Paran Mission and saying, could you use these tomatoes or whatever it is? I met him and he said, look, we're looking for someone to come and pull this together. And I said, look, I've just sold the bar. I will do this for six months and see how we go. And seven years later, I was still there. So that's kind of how I ended up there. It was just one of those moments. So it was meant to be perfect fit. They got me at the right time. The business is at the right stage. I could come in. I had complete autonomy, loads of support, and I could just blow it up. And it was great. I loved it. But then how it morphed was... During that period, I came to understand that there are a lot of farmers and other people that really need to see a return on their product because they're struggling actually to make ends meet themselves. And that for me is one of the most tragic situations we face is that our farmers are actually struggling to put food on the table. There is a real sad irony in that. And so asking them to donate and they would sort of look at me and say, there's a cost to donating. I've got to pick it. I've got to pack it. I've got to ship it. And I can't even afford to do that now that I've had half my crop rejected because it doesn't look the right standard, even though it's perfectly good to eat. So that sort of was an initial moment where I thought there's something broken in this system, very broken. And then I broke down what the four major food rescue organisations were actually moving against the amount of food going to waste. So Food Bank, Oz Harvest, Second Bite and Fair Share, they're four of the big ones. And last year they moved 1.13% of the food waste in Australia collectively. So 
what we can see from that is not that it is not a service that's greatly needed because it is. It plays an essential role in providing healthy, nutritious food for people who are really going through challenging times and struggling to put food on the table for their family. But it is not a solution for food waste. It costs $58 million a year to run those organisations collectively. So you can see that you can't scale that up from 1.13% to actually tackle the whole problem. So that's why I developed tech that could leverage that and without putting any more assets on the road, actually be able to bring this product to market. Can you break down for us that tech and how that is innovative um, to help us? Because I think that immediate desire for a lot of people that don't know these statistics, they're really frightening and they're really frightening when you hear them and they really pull at your heart to say, this is a problem I was unaware of in its gravity before hearing these numbers. And so can you run us through how you're innovating in this space and then potentially how we move more toward bringing that percentage up of repurposing that food and making it less expensive? Well, the first thing that we need to do, I think this is with any problem solving, you need to admit there's a problem in the first place. So the first thing is everybody just needs to say, you know what, this is a problem. We do have this problem. We all have this problem. Let's try and solve this problem because, you know, the game's up. We know that this product is going to waste. And the federal government have just done a new baseline to show that the amount of food we waste is actually going up, not down. So, you know, it is a recurring and an escalating problem. So that's the first thing we need to do. And then with the tech that we've created, it basically is open platform. So as a supplier, once you've met the certification, because we've got to keep everybody safe in the process. Yeah, so you've got to meet certain certification. Once we've approved you as a supplier, approved supplier onto the site, you can then list your own food. So it's not on us, it's on you. You can absolutely look, I've got this 20 pallets of tuna or I've got whatever I might have and it meets all of the health safety requirements I'm putting it up onto the Yumi platform and then it will get pushed out through a machine learning we'll see what different buyers have been looking at on the platform so if you keep looking at fish it will send you that tuna even if you haven't registered for fish because it'll say yep you registered for chocolate but you keep coming back to the tuna so we'll send that to you so there's machine learning in there as well on the platform Um, and then it's capturing all of the data which is really exciting because it's capturing the value of the surplus food market, which is something we haven't historically done because it's seen as this hot potato that I talked about earlier. No one wants to talk about the clearance stock. In the big companies, no one wants to talk about it because that's actually a fail if we've got all of this stock that's about to be written off. If I'm going to write off $2 million worth of stock, no one actually really wants to lament about that and talk about it because it's an embarrassment. Mm. But it's not. It's actually a consequence of doing business. Now, ultimately, I'd like to see those mistakes stop happening altogether, completely avoid the problem in some ways putting myself out of business. But if that's what happens for the greater good, great. Problem solved. Yeah. I'll go and move off grid and enjoy my life with my animals <laughs> and my children. But until that day, I'm going to keep ploughing on. But that's really how the tech is enabled. And with Food Rescue, it's obviously not technically enabled. It's a very traditional model of you ring me, you know, Joan will ring up and say, hi, I've got some tomatoes, love, could you use them? You say yes, and then you pick them up or they deliver them, and then you you put them out to community food programs. So it's a far more manual model. The tech makes tremendous sense here and good on you, Katie, for being the first person to put all the pieces of the puzzle together and start to develop that. I'm interested immediately from that in that piece that you're talking about that it is data gathering and we know that there's power in data, as you say. And so are there any plans with that data that's being gathered to produce potentially some papers around that to take that to the federal government? Is there that piece of the puzzle? Is that moved any further in terms of where you want to take that? 
It's a great question. And the answer to that is yes, it is discussed at board level. One of our board members, Natasha, she is very hot on data. She's all about it. So we will definitely, once we've got enough, we need to be seeing a higher volume of transactions, I think, before we can start to utilise that data. But definitely when it comes to, you know, the value in the surplus market, so we can actually start to see patterns. Well, hang on, every October, November, we get a huge influx of blah. We can start planning for that and people can start thinking, all right, well, we know this is coming up and that's what we need if we want to really tackle this problem at scale. And I should also add that donations is still very close to my heart. So a product that doesn't sell onto the platform at the moment, in partnership with the Victorian government, we're creating a donation functionality which plugs in so that when product doesn't sell, the platform will automatically generate an offer to the food rescue organisation of choice for that company. And again, it's all automated because at the moment, that's a really imperfect manual system as well. Manufacturer can't sell it through their normal channels, tries to sell it through clearance channels then starts ringing up and seeing which food rescue organisation wants it and they can't always take all of it, there is a huge overhead for them in that as well. So by just removing all of that overhead and making it happen seamlessly, our early signs are that food rescue organisations are getting more food earlier. And you can see how that's the case. Yeah. When you think about, you know, you're, you're running your company and then all of a sudden you have this surplus stock and then you've got to get on the phone, you've got to make all these individual phone calls and probably doing that at the end of the day, you know, you're trying to get on, leaving people messages. I mean, it's just that the administration involved in that, you can just see why it's not done. To plug something into the middle of that, to realise that and to do it in a way that you can then do that data gathering, I just think is just, I mean, it's the height of innovation, isn't it? It's exactly what we talk about when we talk about innovation. And I just wanted to touch back on one thing that you were talking about, which is the farmers. Mm. And you mentioned before that if food is not perfect, it doesn't necessarily go to the supermarkets. And I'd like you just to break down what you mean by that, just to educate myself and the audience on you know, what standards food has to meet to land in the supermarket and why it would be rejected? There are actually um, specifications that a certain product needs to meet. So an apple needs to be X centimetres in diameter and you need to have a banana with a certain curve on it because bananas actually grow straight or they will grow super curly as well because nature doesn't grow food to order based on our aesthetics. Anyone that's grown a carrot in their garden knows that carrots don't look the way that you buy them. (laughs) It look like they've got about three heads on them and about 25 different legs. So, you know, and they take forever to grow. There's a real appreciation, I think, when you actually grow something yourself to understand. But they get rejected because they don't meet those specifications. There are lots of different things that happen to plants. For example, broccoli will get something called white blister, which is completely harmless. It's completely harmless. It's a really natural process, but it doesn't look the way we expect it to look. It's not completely green. It's got a little bit of white on it. So, uh, reject that. And I think we've been conditioned to expect perfection. And um, Mother Nature doesn't deliver perfection. She actually does deliver perfection and balance. We mess it up. But that's right. <laughs> you know, we're right. the ones messing it up. Yeah. There needs to be almost, a, I suppose, a, a campaign around that to educate the public. And that reminds me, you were in the ABC documentary War on Waste, which um, I believe that was 2017. Yeah, my goodness. Yeah. Scary. <laughs> let's never mention, let's just not mention let's years not mention ever oh. again after COVID no. because I'm pretty sure COVID lasted for 10 and a half years. I think so. With us down here in Victoria. <laughs> um, and But that sort of ties in and makes me think about that because are you seeing, having worked in this area since you know, the bar days or post-bar days, bug bar, 2014 to now. That's a significant amount of time around this industry and around these innovative things that you're doing. 
With the War on Waste documentary, I know for myself personally, that was quite a big shift in the way that I think about things and what I talked about with my friends. And I was very excited to see you on it because I knew you already in 2016. Are you finding that there is this more open cultural shift? I suppose the crux of my question is, have you seen a mark in time of changing attitudes and more doors opening to talk about this? Like, for example, with the opening of the kimono, are you finding that there's more malleability around different organisations, companies, the federal government? Definitely is the answer. And I'm so pleased to be able to say that. I mean, I first came into Second Bite, it was 2006, which is a really long time ago, if we're going to talk um, dates. Back then, I remember tabling the idea of the word food rescue, and I was laughed out of the room by my own board at one point, who said, food rescue? There's no tomatoes waiting to be rescued. You can't use that term. That's a ridiculous term. And now it's just part of the vernacular. But back then, yeah. 2006, it wasn't. It wasn't used. It was emergency food relief, not food rescue. That was too modern, too alternative. So to see how far we've come since then, yes, there's been a huge shift. But really, I think in the last couple of years, and COVID had something to do with this as well, there was something to be said for everybody being at home, having a think about life and not rushing from here, there and everywhere and being pulled from pillar to post, both socially and professionally and just busy, busy, busy. And so I think that that has also had a shift because we have seen a marked improvement in the responses, especially now that we're tabling our entire solution with donation to some of the really large companies and we've been knocking on their doors for four or five years and now the doors are swinging open and they're like, tell me more about this, let's do this. That's been a huge relief because you do at times feel like you are banging your head against a brick wall daily, actually, sometimes. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back after a message from our partner, Aussie Industries Entrepreneurs Programme. The Entrepreneurs Programme can get you from where you are to where you want to be. Our team of independent business experts can help you bring your ideas and innovations to life. We've got the tools and the networks to get you on the way, and you may be eligible for funding to make it happen. To find out how the Entrepreneurs Program can help you take your business to the next level, visit business.gov.au forward slash EP or call 13 28 46. Welcome back to Next Generation Innovators, where my guest today is Katie Barfield of Yumi Food. Of the stock that you do get, obviously you can't resell it all, I'm imagining. So to give us the full cycle, what then becomes of the food that you can't on-sell and can't repurpose, can't rescue? Yeah. I'm going to say yeah, rescue. rescue. Yeah. So I like uh, that sense of urgency it brings to the <laughs> yeah, table. It's like, come on, yeah. we've got to rescue this. That's right. Because it is perishable. It does have shelf life on it and it will only be good to a certain point. So at the moment, put it up for sale put it out to our entire buying base which is over three and a half thousand buyers we'll get information about that now if it doesn't sell which you know maybe 45 50 percent of product gets an offer on it then it gets um, brought through to donation for those that are participating in that pilot and it stays with the supplier so it's BAU for them so there's no downside for them in the fact that they've got that stock anyway they're trying to clear it they're trying to donate it so far touch wood where we've brought in the donation piece 
the consignments have been completely dispersed for those companies that are taking part in that. So I really hope that's something that continues because the more companies we can get to be involved in that pilot and really show the results, we do have an opportunity to end food waste. Because if we can honour the food waste hierarchy, so it, it sort of avoid, reuse, and then we can go down to animal feed as well. So you've got it for human consumption, then for animal consumption. There's no reason why we can't cascade in a technical sense through all of these different solutions. But what we can say to companies is if you put your product with Yumi, we will try and get you a return for it. If not, we will get some social value out of it by giving it to people. You'll get a tax deductible result. If not, it will go to animal feed. You'll get some credits against your waste accounts. If not this, and that's what we want to be able to do. But what we can say is it will never go to landfill. That's the ultimate goal. Very important to understand that working in financial incentives um, to companies especially that have shareholders, everybody should just be doing the right thing for free. Um, But to create a financial incentive means that you're creating ultimate buy-in, which means that you're creating longevity to solving the problem. So very, very clever to do that. If I'm a consumer, just me, Mm -hmm. Can I make any difference? Can I buy food on the Yumi? I, I, I have no idea, actually. Can I buy food on the Yumi platform? It would be challenging because the MOQs, the minimum order quantities, are pretty large. So unless I wanted 75,000 tins of tuna? Or like a pallet, a pa- pallet of salmon <laughs> rocking up at your door. That's actually happened to us because someone misread the delivery um, invoice and there's this tap, tap, tap on the office door and it's like, I'm here with your four pallets of salmon. We're like, no, 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 that's the um, our company address. You need to <laughs> – luckily it was all in uh, nice refrigerated trucks. So it was all good and it got oh, to its destination. God. But those uh, those sort of crazy things do happen in the life of Yumi. But uh, look, the MOQ is quite large. It's set by the supplier. But the reason for that was to just get the maximum amount of impact and solve the problem. Like for supply it really isn't a great solution if they've got you know 300 different addresses to deliver to yeah um, they've all got to be added into this system they may yeah. be one-off purchases that's just not as streamlined as we want to make it we need to compete with the bin which sounds crazy we need to make this easier than putting it in the bin yeah um, and so in every step of our process we're looking at how do we simplify how do we simplify how do we take the pain points away because initially it was really it was really cumbersome to actually have to lift this product on Yumi because we were building out as we went. You do mm. a minimal viable product and you kind of got the basics there. And so it was like the ducks, you know, gliding and then underwater, everything's going yeah. completely crazy. But we're perfecting it now, which is good. It's a lot less painful. No, that's excellent. And so then in terms of just getting to the business itself, because I think we've spoken a lot about how extraordinary Yumi Foods is and what a great entrepreneur you are, but you're also a really fabulous business leader and a very celebrated business leader. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit about the business as it stands and I'll ask you a few questions about staff and you know and your mm-hmm. leadership style mm-hmm. but I, I wanted to ask very quickly first what is the biggest threat to Yumi Foods right now or the thing that you're keeping your eye on most from a business perspective? Money is always an issue in startup. It really is. You run out of money, you can't scale, you can't test, you can't iterate, you can't employ the people you need to employ to do the jobs that you need them to do. So money is probably the biggest restrictor, but it's also um, can be one of the greatest innovators as well because Mm. constraint breeds innovation because you've got to get clever about this stuff. So you don't waste your time on trying things that you think may work you really, really focus in on what will work mm. and you have to try and test and you've got to make decisions quickly if it's not working, you need to turn it off or you need to move to something else. So it's it's an Achilles heel, but also it can be one of your strengths if you play to it. Probably what keeps me up at night would be the idea that someone comes into this space purely for commercial reasons. 
just purely for commercial, not having a passion to necessarily solve the problem or to make a social improvement for farmers' lives, but actually goes, hey, there's a lot of money to be made in here. Let's just absolutely go for it. Comes in one of the big companies and just does it. That would be, I think, such a crying shame because I know that if we'd done it just for the money, we would have given up a long time ago. You know, we really would. So I think you need the passion and the drive to carry it through. And I'm constantly amazed by my team. You know, my founding team of Cami and Roz is still there as well. You know, we've been pushing at this barrow for a really long time, trying to go through the brick walls that I mentioned earlier, trying to find solutions for what seem insurmountable problems. And we constantly do it. And you have moments where you get to celebrate together, but they're short-lived before you're back to another stumbling block or something else you need to solve because the food system is incredibly complex even just entering weights and the way things are packaged and the different laws around it which are good but it's a minefield so it's taken us a long time one point our process had 114 different touch points in it that we needed to simplify just to get a deal through to a delivery so that's what's going on underneath the hood that's almost unfathomable mm-hmm. um, and you know I can believe that in terms of needing to maintain a product to food standards for consumption, especially in this sort of wild west of, you know, changing it around and you'd almost have to make up your own rules around the rules that are there and educate people as you go. So that is extraordinary. You still talk about it as a startup. To me, it feels like it's a really established, it's been around for long enough. You know, at what at what point will it not be a startup anymore? And, you know, wh- how, how big do you want to go with it? And what's the next steps? Part of leading a startup and the reason we call it a startup is that you have to be constantly honest with yourself you can't believe your own hype so at the end of last year we saw growth in 2020 which was unusual given COVID had such an impact on our business with hospitality just closing overnight that's 40 percent of our business literally stopped overnight we still saw a 15 percent growth in 2020 but one of the things that we did see when we looked at the metrics and the data that is produced every month and we I study that quite intently is We're not habitual yet with these companies. They need to be reminded. So then you've got to ask yourself why. What are we missing? Yes, we've got a business. Yes, we've got a business that's growing, but it's not scaling rapidly enough for my liking. It's not scaling rapidly enough to have the impact I want it to have or to justify the sacrifices that we've made. So it needs to scale quicker. And Part of that is looking at product market fit. Where are the problems in these companies? How do we move even further upstream? And what are the problems that those big companies are facing internally about this hot potato that I talked to you about? They call it the slob list. So it's even got a really, really nasty name, which is slow moving and obsolete stock. It's called slob. Everyone dislikes it because it's a it's a nasty stain. It's $2 million with the stock being written off. No one wants to talk about it. Yeah. Supply chain don't, sales don't, QA don't. No one really wants to, but they have to, and they have to collectively come together and all agree, because no one wants the sole responsibility, that it's going to be written off yeah. or it's going into the clearance channel. Yeah. Um, well, it exposes a bit of potential shame or, I suppose... Here's the joke, they've all got it. So it's yeah. like it's, everyone's yeah. actually got this because it's part of doing business and cr- making food that things go wrong. People press wrong buttons. Guess what? We're human, we do it. Yeah. We go, okay, we'll press that the green snakes are going to taste like strawberry. Oops. <laughs> Oh dear, can't sell those. You know, those sort yeah. of things happen because yeah. humans are fallible. Yeah. 
Once we've nailed it and we are habitual and plugged in and integrated, that's when we can just start to scale it. We can then take this solution to every single manufacturer anywhere in the world and create an opportunity for them to plug into that. So it is global in ambition. Yeah, because the problem's global in nature. I am very happy to hear that. I was going to say that (laughs) because this is not an Australian issue by any stretch. No, it really isn't. Katie, we always end up by saying, what's one piece of advice that you would give women and men and our audience who are looking at starting or scaling up a venture that they have for themselves? Be really ruthless in your own questioning of yourself and your idea. Because one thing that founders are good at is selling themselves the dream. We're really good at it. You know, I've yep. got this great idea. Yeah. Yep. Oh, no, not going to work. So, and I, I think put the idea out there and don't be afraid to ask people to be brutal in their feedback. Because the earlier the feedback, the quicker you're going to get to your destination. And I think the other thing is resilience. I mean, resilience is probably the key characteristic that you need if you're going to last the distance. It is a marathon. It is definitely not a sprint. Most startups are an overnight success that's been in the making for 10 years. Yeah. They all are. They, they all you know, are. I've yep. not met one that goes, oh, and I did this and I did that and da-da, the yeah. end. And then I was no. like a millionaire and now everybody knows me and I'm really good. And, yeah, and I've it's... saved the planet and I'm just like, I'm going to go over here and do lots of interviews. No. So I think if you go in with that expectation that it's going to be a quick process, you're going to be bitterly disappointed. It is a really long process. It's a painful process. Capital raising is painful. Yeah. Uh, you then have to deal once you've achieved capital raise and you've got some money in the bank so that you can actually start to test out your ideas and, and build something that's going to have impact. Then you've got to deal with this whole raft of investors and they all want to have lots and lots of information. Of course they do because they've just invested in your idea. So then yeah. you start to manage a whole different group of people. So there are every single stage comes with another other set of expectations and things yeah. that you need to deliver. And I suppose a really good thing is if you need to get a bit of a understanding of what kind of resilience you'll need, before you even need to talk to investors, just go talk to a friend who might be an investor and see what kind of questions they're going to ask you because Great idea. it will immediately make sense to you how other people view your business versus how you view it. Um, yeah, we had an awful lot of so just explain to me again how that works. And we had to really perfect our elevator pitch. It, yeah. was, it was not an elevator pitch. It was yeah. like an essay at first because yeah. it was such an, a unique concept. And then people would have so many questions. But are you cannibalizing food rescue? No, not at all. The last thing we want to do is like we want to increase the amount of food. We just need to show where it all is so that yeah. people can actually take advantage of the opportunity. Katie Barfield, thank you very much for your time this morning. I know you are a busy woman and we wish you all the very best with Humi Foods. Thank you. Thanks for having me guys as always thank you so much for listening next generation innovators is a future women podcast in partnership with oz industries entrepreneurs program please make sure that you like and subscribe to us so that you don't miss a thing and it also really helps people to reach us and you can let us know you're listening on socials as well if you like we're at future women on instagram facebook and linkedin we'll see you next week